The following Dharma talk was given for the Insight Meditation Community of Charlottesville, Virginia. Please visit our website at imeditation.org. So, like many of you, um, I spent today and many of the past days thinking about this talk tonight because, um, oh, you may have not spent your time thinking about the talk tonight. You maybe are thinking about this whole week and what's unfolding in Charlottesville. Um, Susan spoke about all of the events happening um, uh, on Saturday, but also uh, there are at least three going on tonight, uh, and there are others um, happening every day this week and and this this event here pulls in very close uh, to us um, this larger picture of what is happening what is going on and and what is ours to respond to how do we respond to what is happening and so um, I entitled the talk tonight, um, ABC's Awareness, Beloved Community. And some of you have heard uh, Sharon talk about beloved community as a concept and, and a particular project that um, she is helping to sponsor to invite uh, one way to respond to what's going on um, in our world. So what is ours to do in aiming toward the creation of beloved community? And um, it's really an investigation in my mind around a question that's always here. It, it's not something new that's just occurred in the last uh, several years or, or decade or even a hundred years, but and it and it arises more urgently or not, depending on our circumstances, our conditions, our geography, where we're located in relationship to what is going on. But what is ours to do in aiming toward the creation of beloved community? So a monk in China asks the master, how can I avoid being cold or hot I thought about this tonight as we walked in here, and some of us went, oh my gosh, it's so cold in here. And then and now we're saying, oh, it's kind of warm in here. So how can I avoid being cold or hot? And the master says, well, go where there's no cold or no heat. So we can't go to such a place. So what, how do we respond in this world where we are constantly either this biological organism is either moving towards in anticipation of or wanting more of or moving away from uh, wanting to get rid of that which is unpleasant. So uh, many of you have heard us talk about the Four Noble Truths of the Buddha. And um, I read an article recently about a little a bit of a different way to look at, at the Four Noble Truths. And, the invitation is to look at it from the perspective of what is ennobling, which is not a word we hear much in the English language, but what is a way of living that would be imbued with a respect or some sort of dignity, um, even blamelessness? Yeah. 
somewhat foreign concept uh, at times, it seems. So what is ennobling? That which allows us to live with uh, less regret, maybe, with a little more ease and some joy. Some of you maybe remember a song that was popular many, I'd have to say not just years, decades ago called um, Stop in the Name of Love Before You Break My Heart. I mean, a bunch of us, if, if we're of the right age, could actually probably sing every line to that song right now. But that phrase, stop in the name of love before you break my heart, it's really what some of us may be feeling now in terms of the course of events, the recent past, the present, the future. But I think one of the most important things to remember is that it's a phrase that has been uttered by probably every human being who has lived, who has ever lived over the eons of time, just in witnessing greed, in witnessing um, a craving, in witnessing experiencing anger, hatred, um, confusion, ignorance. Um, all we need to do is to look back historically to see examples of this human predicament. And the scale, the range is huge, from uh, massive wars to um, skirmishes to killings to feuds to battles to bitter disagreements we have all uttered those words. So the reality is that suffering exists and our, our challenge is to figure out how to engage with this truth in a way or with a practice that is ennobling. Maybe another way to say that is, what is a way of living where your mind is actually a friend rather than something that plagues you? <laughs> what is a way of living where you're no longer hostage to the world of conditions? So this path that we're all embarking on, have been embarked upon for a while, um, it's to reduce suffering, to remember our own goodness and that of all beings, and most importantly, to remember that our well-being is not separate from the well-being of every other organism on the planet. And to remember also that we have this boundless capacity for compassion, for kindness. And the, the Buddha wasn't free of conflict and division in his world. He often spoke about it. Um, many of his discourses have to do with conflict and division. And they're often framed as a conversation between two people uh, who are arguing about something or quarreling. Um, and much of the time, those quarrels were crea are created through identification with a particular view. And we can probably resonate with that idea that when we establish a view of I am right, what, what's, what's the other piece of that? That means you're wrong, right? I'm right, 
you're wrong. We create a division immediately, a separation. And there's a very fine line between what, what we want to call the truth and a view. Um, you might think of a view as something that we use to establish a kind of a position. So a viewpoint is often a way of solidifying that which we are tending to believe in that moment. And then that in turn, holding a view, creates a sense of self. Myself, my view, you, yourself, your view, wrong. So um, this is an arena to pay a lot of attention to where we establish view and what does it mean in terms of our question of what is ennobling, what is mine to do? How do I aim to create beloved community? And the Buddha, as much as he was a contemplative, he was also a social activist. So he wasn't just concerned about each individual's personal freedom and development. And to some degree, we may say that, particularly in Western cultures, that sometimes that seems to have been sort of the aim of our development of the Western Buddhism. But he was concerned about the kind of world we actually live in. Not, not that experience that we can have on retreat where we go away and everything is relatively calm. Um, but the kind of world we live in and we are co-creating together, causes and conditions coming together. So that we tend to ask this question, what, again, ennobles our lives which we can then communicate to the world around us through the ways in which we engage with the world. Sometimes with this question of, of trying to describe greed or craving a source of suffering, it's easy to get into uh, ideas about, well, where does it come from? Uh, What's the scenario with it? What's the theory around it? And, and that can be useful. It can provide some insight. But it doesn't really address the primary experience of what it's like to be a human being, a sentient being, creature who is craving, grasping, hanging on to, fearing, hating, which is us at times. What's this actually doing to me when I'm in these states, uh, not aware, how do I work with that? So the, the real practice here perhaps, or one of the practices, is to enter into a relationship with your suffering in which you can transform that experience, one that sort of traps us and binds us and keeps us stuck to one that lets us be free. And to just say a little bit more about the notion of specifically what's happening here this week and some of the conversation and ideas that can 
be created through perhaps an establishment of view. So we have this tendency to be aware of our own victimization at times. Um, we sometimes deny our own capacities to cause harm. Sometimes we have neat divisions between those who are perpetrators and those who are victims, between the oppressors and the oppressed. And sometimes what that does is it, it just sets up for a cycle of sort of continuing ongoing stories that uh, don't really inform. And there's a wonderful poem, I didn't bring it with me tonight, but by Thich Nhat Hanh called uh, Call Me By My True Names, where he takes, many of you are nodding your head, he takes he very... Um, in a very articulate manner, describes what it's like to be the pirate of the ship, the girl on the ship, the rapist, the one who is being raped. So we, we tend to forget sometimes when we become firmly established in a viewpoint um, that we can also uh, cause harm to ourselves, to others. So the question might be, can we take hold of a more complex version of reality in which we're willing to describe ourselves and others as both victims and perpetrators, as both oppressed and oppressors, and to understand the breadth of that concept by informing ourselves, by reading, by learning. And some of us have been doing that over the last couple of years with particularly uh, trying to understand being white in this culture and the, uh, what we don't know about our being white. So we were reading things like homegoing the half has never been told, waking up white, just mercy, the new Jim Crow, the warmth of other suns, hillbilly elegy between the world and me. All titles of great books. If you haven't jumped into any of these, they're wonderful ways to help us wake up to some other perspectives. And one of the things that can happen is you, as you begin to allow these narratives to seep in to the consciousness, in addition to your practice, you begin to grow that degree of awareness and compassion that we all need in order to discern, how do I help create beloved community? The Dalai Lama writes about the enemy within. He says, usually we defined our enemy as a person, an external agent whom we believe is causing harm to us or to someone we hold dear. But such an enemy is sometimes relative and impermanent. One moment the person may act as an enemy, at a, yet another moment he or she may be your best friend. The truth is, 
This is a truth that we often experience in our own lives. But negative thoughts and emotions, the inner enemy, will always remain the enemy. So just noticing uh, to what degree those um, are a source of the suffering. And so the truth of anything uh, really is, to some degree, like a kaleidoscope. It shifts with changes, with perspective. And relatively speaking, the truth of some things is that they are a little more enduring, like the formation of humpback rocks out here on the Blue Ridge Parkway, perhaps. But ultimately, what we know to be true is that everything is changing. There is a fragility to everything. Things bruise, tear, erode, give way, and love and other feelings change in a family. Bodies become ill, change, die. People mistreat one another. Feelings fade, hurricanes flood cities. Earthquakes cause tidal waves and damage nuclear reactors. Change on all kinds of scales. Can you sense how the a sense of calm is so easily disturbed just in even hearing? Rick Hansen says, a house of cards compares to a life in that one gust, a job layoff, an injury, a misjudgment, a little bad luck, knocks it over. So sometimes it's frightening to realize how vulnerable, how fragile this body is, the threads that bind you to others, relationships, agreements, the climate, the ecosystem, states of mind. So one of the questions then may be, can we allow this wave of impermanence to just wash over us, to, to see that it is the nature of all things to be impermanent, to change. Can we allow that to simply wash over us without being knocked asunder? So our practice, our remembering the truth of our compassion, our connection of no self, no separation, is a way in which we can protect and nurture uh, each other, and so that we aren't needlessly surprised or upset when things inevitably fall apart. Take that longer view, pull the lens back, see the larger view. So we can, we can notice the discomfort that we have with the fragility of things, the impermanence of things, and we can also be aware of other, tr <coughs> other truths, <coughs> excuse me, such as our resilience, <clears throat> our stability, our 
compassion, our kindness. We sometimes forget about those things when we're impacted by <coughs> that which is going on. So, if we become aware of the ground beneath our feet, this moment, resting back in awareness of these sensations, this breath, this capacity for being here, for awareness without needing it to be other than the way it is. So Leonard Cohen wrote, ring the bells that can still ring. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. That's how the light gets in. I'm going to just read something from, um, this is Tanisra's book, which is entitled Time to Stand Up, an Engaged Buddhist Manifesto for Our Earth. She's writing primarily about the uh, um, planet, the climate change crisis, but much of what is said in here could be applied to any uh, of the topics that we are um, faced with. And this particular excerpt is actually a quote from Larry Yang, who is a Buddhist teacher uh, out in Oakland, California. And he writes about the beloved community. And this is what he says about it. We have to be in love with the beloved community. I say that simply because it's not something that will be handed to us because we want it or we think it's a positive goal to have in life. It doesn't happen simply because we deserve it or feel entitled to it. It's not something that happens on its own or occurs through someone else's efforts. It requires our unwavering collective intention and actions fed by a reservoir of aspirations. In order to create the beloved community, we need to be totally in love with its vision. We need to be totally inspired by the possibility of our human potential collectively. We need to be sustained by the brilliance of our beauty as human beings, which gives us hope and leads us to our innate goodness. And we need to be sustained also by our deepest sorrows and our challenges, because that is where we learn our courage to live our fullest life to the best of our abilities in order to awaken together. And that is such a worthy aspiration for beloved community. And just to close, before I ask you to um, talk to each other for a few minutes, but before we do that, I want to close with some uh, verses from a, a poet named Robert Aiken. 
and he, this poem is much longer. I've just up, excerpted a few for tonight. So I mean, you might want to just close your eyes and listen to what he says. And notice if this could be aspiration for yourself with the aim to create beloved community. Waking up in the morning, I vow with all beings to be ready for the sparks of the truth from flowers or children or birds or they who hold a completely different perspective. Looking up at the sky, I vow with all beings to remember this infinite ceiling in every room of my life. When I walk around in the city, I vow with all beings to notice how lichen and grasses never give up in despair. Watching a spider at work, I vow with all beings to cherish the web of the universe, touch one point, and everything moves. Hearing the crickets at night, I vow with all beings to keep my practice as simple, just over and over and over again. So I thought maybe it might be interesting for us to contemplate individually um, what is our thinking about beloved community? When do decisions matter? And how does awareness in our moment-to-moment -moment experience create a knowing of what is mine to do in the critical moments? And then the last question is, what is mine to do?